where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Hello and welcome back to The Messy Intersection. I am your host, Diana, and I am a registered dietitian specializing in pediatric and family health, a certified intuitive eating counselor, and a mom of two. I am really excited for you to listen to this episode. Uh, Today I am talking to dietitian Brooke Miller about her struggles with recurrent miscarriages. Now, if you have tuned into the last two episodes, you might know that uh, two episodes ago, I aired an interview with dietitian Heather Kaplan, who discussed the challenges and frustrations of getting pregnant when you hadn't planned to. This episode is intended to be a sister episode to that one, and I really appreciate your voices, you listeners, in encouraging me to make sure that I did that and not just air an episode about how frustrating it is to get pregnant three times in a row when there are so many parents out there who would be thrilled to be in that situation. It was actually a commenter in my Facebook group, Raising Anti-Diet Kids, who encouraged me to do this. Now, what does infertility and recurrent miscarriages have to do with raising anti-diet kids? Brooke and I are going to talk about that a little bit in the episode, mainly in terms of heading into pregnancy or attempting pregnancy, if you can, from a place where you have already done the work of body acceptance, uh, because, you know, when miscarriage and loss is part of the deal, if you're also struggling with accepting and appreciating your body, it just makes it that much harder. But I will let Brooke be the one to tell you more about that. So let me tell you a little bit about Brooke. Brooke Miller is a registered dietitian who is passionate about helping moms thrive in the postpartum period to improve energy and mood, heal their hormones and metabolism. She also co-hosts the Mama Well podcast and she can be found on Instagram at Nutrition for Mamas or the Mama Well. And I should mention that Brooke and I recorded this episode about six months ago before I paused the podcast to work on my Anti-Diet Kids rebrand. So after the original interview, she's going to pop back on for a quick update on what's been going on with her. And before we jump into the episode, just a reminder that the content on this show is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. And the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. And it is very important for me to include a content warning here. Brooke and I are going to be talking about pregnancy loss and, in fact, a very difficult pregnancy loss. And there's also some discussion of Brooke's difficult but successful pregnancy with a child with Down syndrome and the suggestion by her medical team that she could terminate that pregnancy. So if you were not in a place to hear about either of those things, I encourage you to sit this one out. (sighs) All right, let's hear from Brooke. Hey, Brooke. Welcome to the Messy Intersection. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really honored that you decided to join me here and share your story because I really think it's going to mean a lot to a lot of moms out there. Um, So why don't we just jump in? You can tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, your family. Yeah, so I'm Brooke Miller. I live in Denver, Colorado, and I have a husband. We started dating 16 years ago in high school, so we've been together for a while. And then we have a two-year-old son named Ashton. And yeah, I'm a registered dietitian. I help moms specifically, um, typically pretty postpartum. Like in that first year postpartum, um, I was a certified lactation specialist too. So I have a lot of experience with breastfeeding, breastfeeding support. And so I help moms learn how to ditch the diet, but still implement healthy behaviors for their mental and physical health after they give birth and have a baby. But yeah, my clients kind of range from like right out of the gate postpartum to toddlers or five-year-olds, 10-year-olds. So kind of a span of different age groups for moms, but I love, I love helping moms. Yeah. Well, um, you're on the right podcast because yeah. <laughs> I love helping moms too. Um, and our niches definitely, uh, line up, but, um, you have a, a really important story that I definitely want you to share, but, um, before we get into what you've been going through more recently, would you share with us just how you became a mom? Yeah. So uh, with my son, I got pregnant and at six weeks and eight weeks, everything looked normal. And then all of a sudden at our 12 week ultrasound, the doctors kind of pulled us in and said, things don't look good. There's fluid on the baby's chest. There's a thick nuchal translucency. We are pretty sure your baby has some sort of abnormality. They listed off like 10, 15 things. A lot of them meant that the baby wouldn't survive after birth or wouldn't survive the pregnancy and kind of just said, well, we can go upstairs and have an abortion now, or we can like run more tests. 
Yes. And I was like, I was just in shock. Like, whoa, I'm give me a second to process this news. Um, and so then the next day we went to a maternal fetal specialist and it was the same conversation, like literal same thing. Here are the things that could be wrong. Essentially, like there is a 25% chance that this baby is going to die soon. Um, and we're like, oh my gosh. Okay. So then we did the blood test and, um, after that, them telling us like this long list of what the baby could have, the blood test came back positive for Down syndrome, but negative for everything else. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> but the doctors were like, oh, no, this is bad. Down syndrome is terrible. Like, again, we can go terminate your pregnancy if you want. And I'm like, um, no, actually, I, I love kids with special needs. Like, this is great. Um, so my husband and I actually took the news very well, but the news was not delivered well from the doctors. And then um, about 19 weeks pregnant, I went in for that 20-week ultrasound and they checked the heart and said that your baby has a heart defect. You need to go see a cardiologist. And then the next week, the cardiologists were amazing. And they said, yep, your baby has this heart defect, super common with Down syndrome. Um, We fixed that four to six months. We're going to be good. His cardiologist was incredible. He was like, yeah, this is great. We do the surgery all the time. We got you lined up with the best surgeons. And they just like they totally eased our minds because they were so comfortable and confident with his heart and everything. So fast forward about 27 weeks into my pregnancy, they said, you know, baby's not growing, your placenta is not functioning, your risk of stillbirth is going up. um, And we can't let you go full term because the risk of stillbirth is even higher past 37 weeks for this issue specifically. And they said the max we would let you go is 37 weeks, but there's no way you're going to make it that far. So then I'm like getting beta methadone shots at 29 weeks and 31 weeks. And um, we're just checking my placenta twice a week. And, um, and luckily it held out. It was not functioning great. He wasn't growing great. My doctor was like, you need to gain more weight. You, you can't exercise, which for me, exercise has always been a big part of my life. And they're like, you can't exercise. You need to gain weight. So hearing this as a dietitian, like no exercise, gain weight, eat all the ice cream. I was like, all right, that sounds great. <laughs> um, so then we ended up somehow making it to 36 weeks. And I went in for my last ultrasound and they said, yeah, no, we're inducing you today. He didn't tolerate labor. Great. His heart rate kept dropping. So by the time I was pushing, there were about eight nurses or eight doctors. <laughs> so like the whole NICU was in there. Like, I mean, it was kind of chaotic. And then he luckily came out. They did an echo right there. And they're like, yep, it's the heart defect. We thought he's good. Like, we'll, we'll repair it in four, four to six months. So then um, thank God we were only in the NICU for six days, which was amazing. Um, we were anticipating a longer NICU stay, but he was in and out fast. Uh, he surprised the whole NICU, but I, I will say it was really hard that first night, like leaving your baby in the hospital when you're seeing all the moms leaving labor and delivery with their babies in the car seat. And you're like, that sucks. <laughs> I wish that was me. Um, but we got him home. He's doing great now. He had heart surgery at four months and he is perfectly healthy. So yeah. And you all have to check out uh, her Instagram nutrition.for.mamas because there are some pictures of this handsome little man on there. And uh, he just seems like a really special kid. Um, what just came to mind for me is like when um, you did deliver him, like, were you worried like that somebody was about to tell you it was a stillbirth or like, how did you Well, we were, I was so closely monitored during labor. Like they do this probe in their head. It's like literally where they put a probe in his head to check his heart rate. I had the belly band. I mean, I, they were checking his heart rate so closely. So like every second I knew what was going on. I could see though, the doctors were freaking out as I was pushing and they said his heart rate's getting too low. His heart rate's getting like, they were ready for an emergency C-section, but, um, luckily he was, four pounds. So he came out pretty quickly, but it was like moments of, I could see the panic in everybody's eyes, but I could see that his heart was still beating. So at that point, like they induced me at the right time. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yes. And so, uh, you know, adjusting to motherhood with uh, a premature child, a child with Down syndrome, a child who needed heart surgery at four months. um, Mm -hmm. How are you doing (laughs) at the time? (laughs) I, you know, I was struggling a lot with anxiety and I'm not, I'm a very uh, laid back person. I'm just like a very chill, relaxed person, but I was dealing with a lot of anxiety. He also has higher risk for leukemia is something that they had discovered at birth. And so we're getting him tested all the time for that. So I've always had a lot of anxiety about him getting leukemia. 
And then of course, like a lot of anxiety about the oxygen he was on and his heart and all of those things. So the first few months of motherhood were really scary of just like a lot of doctor's appointments and um, pumping around the clock. And he was the chillest baby ever. I mean, all he did was sleep because that's all he he had the energy to do. So, I mean, in terms of him as a baby, super easy, (laughs) easiest kid ever. I could bring him anywhere. He was just on his oxygen. So we carted around his oxygen and his diaper bag and everything. And we were at, I mean, we were at the doctor all the time, but he was such a good baby. So I don't know. It was nice that he wasn't fussy. And then I was just pumping all the time. That was a full-time job. I will say like, that is something that I think I didn't anticipate how much work pumping would be. Mm -hmm. And then once he ended up breastfeeding at about five months old, it just got so easy. Like he was nursing on demand. We, the doctor's appointments had slowed down. He had recovered from open heart surgery. Um, and then it just felt like being a normal parent at that point. Um, so that felt good. (laughs) Wow. Were you working at like a lot of women are back to work at five months? My job at the time, I was a clinical dietitian and my job at the time was pretty flexible. I didn't start work until um, he was six months old. Mm -hmm. And then for a month, my mother-in-law moved in and I was working from home downstairs in my clinical job. And then my mother-in-law was upstairs with him for four weeks. So I got to really ease back into work. And then um, now he's at like an in-home daycare with like one other kid. And Mm -hmm. it's like his third grandma. She loves him. So he's in a really good um, daycare right now. So that's great. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like things got a little bit more normal, calm, um, but you've been trying for another kid and, uh, that's what you're mostly here to talk about today. So tell us, uh, about that. Yeah. So it was about a year ago, over a year ago that we decided we wanted to have another baby. And then last August, um, I had a chemical pregnancy, which sounds very like, (laughs) I don't know. It's a, it's like a, it's a weird thing to process because physically there's not much going on. Like it just feels like a period physically, but emotionally it's really hard to process because I had friends like say like, Oh, at least it was early. Oh, well you only knew for a week. Just a lot of people brushed it under the rug. Like I shouldn't be upset by it. And that, that was really difficult um, to process. I actually had a friend like that was due the exact same day as me. So her due date was like very triggering for me, her entire pregnancy which sounds bad, nothing against her. It just happened to be that our babies had the mm-hmm. same due date. And then, so I was supposed to be due with that baby in May. And then in, let's see, in January, um, we conceived our third pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we went in for a six-week checkup and ultrasound. And they said, you know, we don't see anything here. It looks like it might be a blightened ovum. 90% sure you're going to miscarry. Come back in a week. So then we went back in a week and they were like, yeah, like, you're going to miscarry. What do you want to do? And I was like, I'm holding on to that 1% sliver of hope that something will happen. And so let's hold off. And so I came back in um, three weeks. And at that point, like I had been bleeding for five days and they were like, yeah, like the whole pregnancy is pretty much still in there. And again, a blightened ovum is when like the fetus passes really, really early. And so it like is reabsorbed into your body so that when you look at an ultrasound, it's like a big sack that's empty. So there's still the placenta and the fluid and all of those things, but there's no fetus that you see on the ultrasound. So I thought, oh, passing this miscarriage will be way easier than passing a regular 10-week pregnancy. Not the case. Um I ended up with the vaginal ultrasound that they did. It just like stirred things up. And then I got home and I was like telling my husband, I said, I'm bleeding so much. I mean, I was sitting on the toilet. This is kind of graphic, but I feel like it's important to know because I had no idea what to expect. I had just heard a a miscarriage is like a heavy period. And my first one was. And so um, I just remember sitting on the toilet and I said, something just fell out of me and I can't see because the toilet is red and I can't see what's happening. And I was in so much pain. I had oxy from the doctor and that that didn't touch it. And I'm sitting there on the toilet with oxy and I'm like, I, I can't even stand up. And they said, if you're bleeding through a pad in two hours, you need to go to the hospital. And I was ble- bleeding through at the heaviest pad in two minutes. And so I was like, I need to. So the doctor said, go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and uh, got checked in and <laughs> they asked me to take a urine sample. And I'm like, good luck trying to get urine <laughs> without blood in there. Um, so did that. And then I literally just sat in the ER on this like commode bucket and I was like hooked up to morphine and it wasn't touching it. I mean, it was truly, I've been through labor. It was truly as painful as labor because it was the same process. And so I was just sitting there trying to get drugged up (laughs) 
it <laughs> wasn't touching it. And then after a few hours, then they could bring me into the OR, which my doctor was a little upset that it took them so long to get me in the OR. They were waiting on some nurses and some other things. But yeah, so it was like a very oh my gosh, it just like, it all happened so fast and it came on so strong and it was so painful. And that wasn't something physically I was anticipating. So that was a big shock to me. Uh And so you tell this story in a very matter of fact way. And I know you're very open about this on your social media as well, but Mm -hmm. what's, I mean, so so first of all, when you found out that it was a blighted ovum, sorry, I can't even say it because I'm I'm familiar with a term, a blighted ovum. Um, Did you know what that was? Uh, You know, did you know what it meant for the um, miscarriage that you were about to have? What's going through your mind in terms of I already had a miscarriage, I already had a high risk pregnancy? Why is this happening to me again? Yeah, I felt like a little, um, I was just like so jealous of other women who were getting pregnant, like my friends who were getting pregnant and having like these perfect pregnancies. And I just felt, which is not my personality at all. I'm not a jealous person, but I felt very resentful and I felt very like, why me? I mean, now that Ashton's healthy, I like, I don't see that as a burden, but that pregnancy itself was very stressful. Um, It was not an enjoyable pregnancy because I was so anxious and scared the whole time and stressed. Yeah. I just, I started pouring into research. That is my personality of, okay, well, what am I in for? And so I started researching and I had heard stories of women who got misdiagnosed with a blightened ovum that early. And they said, hold off, just hold on off until about nine weeks. They could be wrong. Um, And so that was like that sliver of hope that I was hoping that I would be that rare case. I wasn't, but I was hoping for that. And so I had like a 1% sliver of hope, but otherwise it was weird to process the whole thing because your body was still, my body was still going through all the morning sickness. So I was, had really bad bloating and I had morning sickness and I had food aversions and I, my pants weren't fitting. And, um, I mean, I looked 10 weeks pregnant and obviously as you have more pregnancies, like your body expands faster. And so I'm like, wow, I'm gaining weight. I look bloated. I'm sick. I can't even hold down food. I'm nauseous. And I know that like, I'm not going to get a baby out of this. And so, yeah, I was, I was mad. I was angry. I was frustrated. And my doctor, she felt so bad for me. She even called me after the surgery and said, you know, you're one of my favorite patients. And I just wish I could have been there for you because I just, my heart aches for you. And so, um, I know she's, (laughs) she's there cheering us on, hoping, (laughs) hoping for another one, but yeah, it was an, it was an emotional roller coaster for a month. I mean, it was a full four weeks from the time that we found out until we miscarried. So it was like this month and, you know, I sat through baby showers oh. while I was miscarrying and oh. pretending like I was fine and I wasn't. And it's such an awkward thing to bring up. Like you're not going to tell the person, Hey, I can't actually attend your baby shower because I'm literally bleeding and miscarrying right now. You know, oh. it was just, I don't know. Oh. I, it was just a weird experience to, <laughs> to have to go through when, when the world is everybody else, you know, you don't want to take away anybody's spotlight or joy or happiness. And so I just try to keep a lot of it in, which probably isn't, isn't the best thing. Well, you say that now, but you're also very forward about this on your, your Instagram channel. At least you have a whole story highlight about that that you filmed while you were in the middle of this, you're out for a walk. I imagine like with the pad in and you're in the middle of this and, you know, um, I, I was really moved by that. Uh, I, I noticed that, you know, you would share a couple sentences and you would say, and I'm not getting a baby, a few more sentences, and I'm not getting a baby. Like, it felt like a, a literary device, basically, to share what you were going through, kind of hammer the point home to anyone watching that, you know, the reason that we even put ourselves through this absurdity of yeah, our yeah. bodies, like doubling in size and the morning yeah. sickness and the lightning vagina pain and just like, yeah. <laughs> is to get babies. Right, right. And, uh, you know, and, and and you were, with this particular kind of miscarriage, you were going through all that. Um, was, that was that something you had on your mind when you were sharing that? It kind of came out really quickly. Um, I wasn't like planning on sharing it in the moment. And then I had a lot of clients reach out, but my client, oh my gosh, my clients were so supportive. And, you know, I felt like I had to share because I had clients going through miscarriages. I had clients trying to conceive and I had clients going through fertility treatments. And I just like wanted 
the women to know like you're not alone. And if you're going through this, like I'm an open book. And I will say like the one positive of sharing my story after my surgery was a lot of people reached out and said, thank you for talking about this. I felt so alone. I felt so stigmatized. And that was the difference between my first and my second was, you know, we didn't tell anybody we were going through the first one until after it was over. And that was a really uncomfortable place to be of telling your parents, like my mom had come over, of course, like bless her heart. Mm -hmm. She didn't know my mom had come over and said, Oh, I can't wait for Ashton to be a big brother. And I said, yeah, I had a miscarriage this week. And my mom was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. And so telling our parents after the miscarriage had happened was so awkward. And so with this second miscarriage, we actually told our parents like, when we were like five weeks, because we're like, well, if we miscarry again, we want you guys to be in the loop. We want you guys to know what's going on because telling them after the fact felt way harder. Not that we want to tell the whole world, but um, I don't know. After going through it, I feel like I would rather have people to talk to about it who've gone through it, other moms who've gone through it and support me versus feeling really isolated and alone because I know it's not my fault deep down. I know it's not my fault. I know there was nothing I could do about it. But for me, therapy helps. Talking to friends who've gone through it is helpful. Sure, some people said the wrong thing. Absolutely. (laughs) But I think that's why it's important to talk about so people know what to say, how to support their friends. But just pretending like it never happened. I mean, I had some friends after my surgery, they just never talked to me about it. And they never asked me about it. And you know, I had a friend go through stillbirth when we were 21. And I remember like not knowing how to support her in that moment because I was like, I don't want to upset her. I don't want to talk to her about it. I don't want her to start crying. But really like looking back, she probably wanted that support from us. So I feel bad. Like I feel like I've learned full circle. I have learned how to help people now who are going through it. So while we're here on that subject, like what were some of the things that your friends did say that you you feel like were the wrong things to say? Like, what would you say to anyone who's got their own friend in this situation about what they can say, what they can do to be most supportive to the woman in that situation? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, like one thing my OB said when I, when she told me, she was like, well, you can try again next month. And again, I know that was like, well-meaning that was with the first pregnancy, the Mm -hmm. first loss that was early. Um, and I know she was well-meaning, but it was like, well, this was still a loss. And even though it was early, um, I mean, I had some friends say like, oh, it was really early and just kind of skip over it. And then I had a lot of friends just honestly not ask me anything. They didn't ask how I was doing. They, and I know they care, But I think they felt like if they brought it up to me, they would upset me. Or if they brought it up, they would make me cry or make me sad. But the truth is, I felt better if somebody just asked, hey, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. The things that people did do that were really supportive. I mean, I have a business coach. She sent me like this beautiful care package. My best friend sent me a care package. I mean, I had friends. I had strangers reach out and send me a Starbucks gift card. Mm -hmm. And like just those little things like made me feel seen and supported and um, just like, Hey, I've gone through that too. I'm so sorry. If you need to talk, I'm here. And I think that's the biggest thing is just like, ask how they're doing. Just say, Hey, how are you doing? Because some days you're going to be doing great. And some days they're not going to be doing great. So just check in with them and don't say things like, Oh, at least it was early or you can try again, or at least you have another kid. Like those are not the right things to say. Mm-hmm. Just simply ask, hey, how are you doing? Send them a gift card. Like send them a coffee. Send them a flower. Send them, you know, do something sweet for them that's really simple because those simple things really, you just feel supported in that moment. Yeah. I think I I saw an Instagram post some, I don't remember whose it was, but it was like, hey, advice for um, talking to somebody who's experienced infant loss. Don't start any sentence with at least. You don't get to do that. The mom can do that if she wants to, but yeah. you you don't get to do that. And yeah. it's like, yeah, that's yeah, it's so true. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's one way to look about it. So yeah. Um, so um, on top of the tragedy of miscarrying uh, and wanting another baby and not getting one yet, mm-hmm. this has meant a lot of changes for your body. And you know, even with your first pregnancy, as you explained, you might have carried that baby to 36 weeks and you were told that there was a risk of a stillbirth. So 36 weeks worth of enduring a pregnancy and the body changes that that means and potentially no baby. And again, with your uh, blighted ovum, you know, however many weeks, body changes, no baby. Um, What 
is that like? Because uh, a lot of times, you know, when I'm coaching moms, we talk about how, like, you know, even if you're not satisfied with your postpartum body, um, you wouldn't you wouldn't trade it for the whole world if it meant not having your child. Uh, and now we've got the worst of both worlds. Mm-hmm. So what does that what does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've gone through this work for so long that for me, I looking at my body stepping on the scale, it's not even something I do. It's not even something I pay attention to. I mean, I wake up and if something doesn't fit, I put it in the donate pile or I get rid of it. Or if I'm pregnant, I put it aside and I put on some maternity pants. I mean, I was like in maternity pants at like eight weeks because I was so bloated. And had I not done this work on my own relationship with food and body, I think it would have been so much harder. But I just already had so much on my plate mentally and emotionally and raising a two-year-old that it was like I didn't I didn't have time to worry about something else. I didn't have the energy or mental capacity to want to worry about something else. And so I think in the back of my mind, I kept telling myself, well, it doesn't matter if you gain weight or if your body changes because like you're still going to get pregnant again someday. Like holding all that hope, like, well, your body's going to change again anyway, hopefully, you know, when you get pregnant. And so I think that was like, again, keeping me going of, well, it doesn't matter if I gain five pounds or 10 pounds right now, because hopefully I'll get pregnant again soon and it all, it won't matter. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, had I not ditched the scale and had I not healed my relationship with food and body years and years ago, this would have been so triggering. And Yeah. I mean, I think if you just don't do this work, it's just, it's that much harder and healing your relationship with food and body. It is not a quick fix. It's not something that you just like take a quick, you know, online course in two weeks and you healed your relationship with food and body. That's just not how it works. I mean, it really takes a lot of identifying your triggers and learning how to reframe things and ditching the scale and cleaning up your social media and wearing clothes that fit you and get rid of things that don't. And even yesterday, I, mean, I got rid of three bins of clothes and it was like, these either don't fit or I haven't worn them in so long and they're old and I don't need them. So yeah, I think it's just, you have to do this work because if you don't, this is just going to be an added stress. And as moms, like we don't, we don't need added stress to our plate. Like as moms are trying to conceive or going through loss, like there's already so much that you're dealing with emotionally and mentally that like hating your body on top of that for what it's doing. And I mean, I for sure have resent, I like resent my body for not being able to carry, like for having lost pregnancies. There's definitely some like feeling resentful there, but not necessarily for weight gain. But again, I don't think that this would be the case five years ago or, or eight years ago. Um, I think I would have been very triggered by the weight gain and set on that. Well, so while we're on that subject, would you mind sharing with us where you were at five or eight years ago and, you know, what kind of things you're doing at the time and how and why that all changed for you? Yeah. So eight years ago, I was in my internship to become an RD. And I remember using my fitness pal. I remember trying to eat really low calorie. I was exercising every single day. I mean, I lived in Las Vegas. So I lived in a city where your looks were were very important. I mean, I was going out to the nightclubs and getting rated if I could even get into the nightclub. And um, so like my body mattered. My body mattered so much in at that time of my life like my weight mattered I was going to pool party I mean it's just it was such a it sounds bad it was just it was I was very shallow mm-hmm. and and then I got into my first job and then again I was still I had learned about intuitive eating and I had like dipped my toes in the hunger fullness part of it but I was still using my fitness pal I was still counting calories I was still trying to eat clean I was still doing sugar detoxes I was still doing things like whole 30 and um it was just taking up so much mental space so much mental energy um I would feel sometimes guilt and shame about what I ate not all the time but I just felt so tied to like what I was eating and letting it define me. Like I wanted to prove that, Ooh, I was such a good dietitian because I got vegetables in today and you didn't almost like a judgmental, Mm -hmm. like I was on a high horse. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's a lot of how you grow up too. I mean, I grew up, I was an athlete. I was a college athlete. I had a personal trainer at 15. I had a six pack at 15. Like I just had these standards for myself and I grew up in a house where being fat wasn't acceptable. I grew up in a house where there were food rules and we couldn't have certain things in our house and people were judged if they gained weight. And it was very, I mean, again, I I don't think I'm alone there. I think a lot of families 
talk that way. And it's unfortunate. And I'm definitely going to break that cycle for my kids. And I'm going to let them know that regardless of people's sizes, everybody is worthy and worthy of respect. But that was my mentality for so long. Well, I need to be healthy because I'm a dietitian. I need to be healthy because I'm a college athlete. And in order to be healthy, I need to strive for weight loss. That was my mentality. And the funny thing is, with, with my dieting, with my restricting, I actually never really lost weight. I have been around that set point weight, weight range for <laughs> 10 years. I mean, my weight has not drastically changed, maybe five to 10 pounds total. But like when I was like restricting eating 1200 calories a day, I wasn't losing weight. And so I finally hit a point of like, why am I torturing myself? And then I was terrified to start like intuitive eating. I was terrified to start allowing myself to eat all foods. And and then I found, oh, wow, I gained like two pounds maybe. I mean, it wasn't for me. It was like, why, why would I live my life trying to strive for the smaller body when it's not even feeling good? And so that was kind of, <laughs> it was years, it was years of work to slowly get there. <laughs> Although when I am working with an intuitive eating client, we always, I have to put it out there and I'm sure you do this with your clients as well. You may gain two pounds. You may lose two pounds. It may be more, it may be a much bigger gain than that. It may be a much bigger loss than that. We don't know. And that's not the objective here, right? So you just always have to put that out there. But yeah. And I mean, I've seen the same thing with clients. It's like when, and I get asked all the time on discovery calls of, Mm -hmm. okay, will your program help me lose weight? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know. And so much of it depends on, I mean, I, again, I was in my set point weight range while I was dieting. And then I was in my set point weight range while intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. And so for me, my body is just very comfortable. And even though my BMI says overweight, that's just where my body is comfortable at. But yeah, some people, they're below their set point weight and they need to gain weight. And so your body is going to gain weight. And some people are way above their set point weight. And so when they find intuitive eating, sometimes they lose weight. And so, yeah, everybody's so different. <laughs> and it also tells us a lot, I think, about, I don't even like talking about this stuff because I don't know if it would be triggering for people, but like, I know, yeah. Restrict 500 calories a day to lose one pound a week or whatever. Like, I'm only bringing that up to illustrate what BS it is because yeah. if I assume you increased your intake above 1200, which like, oh, yeah. Th- that whole 1200 thing is trending right now in terms yeah. of like, it's what a toddler should eat. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so if you're eating more, but, you know, nothing is really changing in terms of the scale, that tells us that our theory about the math of eat X many calories for X amount of weight loss, which is a big thing that my fitness pal is, is big on, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and all the other ones, Noom and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's just faulty science, right? Like it's, it, yeah. it, it should work in theory, but human bodies are just a lot more complex than that. And that's where we get into the set point um, weight kind of, thing, which is a theory as well. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, and the yeah. dieting, you know, when you're dieting and restricting, I think something that is not talked about enough is it's slowing down your metabolic rate. I mean, yeah. when you're cutting calories and cutting protein and not eating enough, I mean, your body goes into starvation mode, your metabolism slows down, your heart rate slows down, like your body is trying to preserve its organs and it's trying to stay at homeostasis. And so that's why I've actually seen a lot of women come to me and say, I'm eating a thousand calories a day or 1200 calories a day and I'm gaining weight. I'm like, yeah, your body, your cortisol levels are high. Your your stress levels are high because your body is trying to preserve this. Like your body wants to be nourished. So we really need to move to a point of nourishing your body because yeah, your body just is not at equilibrium when it's restricting like that. Yeah. The, you know, what else this brings to mind for me, um, and I'd love to know your perspective on this is, um, so one thing is that because so, so many of my guests are dietitians, I always have to put it out there dietitians are more prone to restrictive eating. Just the sheer fact that they decided to study nutrition, either they (laughs) decided to study it because they wanted to learn how to do it exactly perfectly, or in studying it in and of itself, you learn calorie counting. You're like, well, apparently this is the best thing to do, so I should do this. So we have this whole pool of dietitians who is more prone to eating disorders than the general public, which is so ironic. It is so true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But what I'm curious about is, um, is there anything similar in in women who are trying to conceive in terms of wanting to just do it right to, Mm -hmm. to get the baby the best environment? Like, do you see that in your clients at all? You know, typically I'm working with women after they have a baby. Um, Mm -hmm. At my first clinic, you know, I worked at WIC for years. And so I, I worked with a lot of pregnant women. I actually don't work with a lot of women trying to conceive because they've already gone through that process before they get to me. But yeah, I mean, I think setting yourself up 
it's just like get you know there's the basic things that we should be doing if we're trying to conceive like getting on a good prenatal and cutting our caffeine down i mean i still have a cup of coffee while trying to conceive um so you can have some caffeine and you know like limiting alcohol i mean there are certain things that we should be doing but really i think the biggest thing is just eating consistently and eating enough when you're trying to conceive because some women you know can run into issues of like not getting their period or running into irregular cycles because they're over exercising and not eating enough. So I think the biggest thing for women trying to conceive is eat enough, eat often, you know, try to eat a variety of foods, get on a good prenatal, um, and really work through stress levels, like really try to get your stress down, which is, you know, it's ironic because when you're trying to conceive, it's very stressful, but those cortisol levels in your body matter. And so just trying to find things throughout your day that like meditation is a big one. I do. I love meditation. My clients know what I try to, try to get all my clients to meditate and journal, but, um, just things like that, that you can add into your day is really helpful. So, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And I, I also run, I, I, same as you, I don't have a ton of clients who are trying to conceive, but some are pregnant and there is this fear once you are pregnant of putting something in your body that would not be ideal and would lead to the miscarriage or like not doing it exactly right. Um, and you know, that's going to produce a miscarriage for you as someone who has had multiple miscarriages. And you said earlier, you know, deep down that it's not your fault. Like how much does that play a role? Yeah. I mean, I think I am so science heavy, right. As a dietitian, like mm -hmm. I think we know that we just know the science behind miscarriages are not the mom's fault. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, if you're doing some hard drugs, <laughs> that could lead to miscarriage. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there are some things, but they're pretty extreme. I mean, even like the caffeine, I've had women come to me panicked, like, oh, I had two cups of coffee today. Is that going to cause a miscarriage? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. Just drink some more water today. So I've, I've definitely had women come to me panicked about like, oh, I had this while I was pregnant or I accidentally had lunch meat. So, you know, the guidelines for pregnancy are, are simply guidelines. Definitely try to follow them as best you can. But I mean, there were days with Ashton, I had two cups of coffee while pregnant, mm -hmm. two small cups of coffee. And, you know, it's just, you have to do what you have to do. But typically, if you look at the research, causing a miscarriage on mom's end, it has to be pretty extreme. Like, a car accident, like a really bad injury, doing some hard drugs. Mm -hmm. So if you're not doing those things, you likely didn't have anything to yeah. do with that. And so I think it's important if you are like kind of research heavy or if you need that like logic to help you reframe how your miscarriage was caused. I think for me, it was just like, I knew the research, same with down syndrome. I I've, I've had friends with birth diagnosis of down syndrome. And my one friend said, I remember thinking it was my fault because I'm older. And I was like, it's not your fault. It's, it's just, it's random. Like, I mean, there are the three, you know, it's like a very rare where um, you can pass down syndrome along, but I was like, no, it's just super random. We just got blessed, <laughs> We're just lucky, you know? Um, and so I think a lot of people with even like that type of diagnosis blame themselves. Like I did something during the pregnancy to cause this. And most of the time it's, it's just genetic. It's something mm -hmm. that we had no, you know, we just, we, can't really cause a miscarriage. Where do you think we get that idea from though? Just in terms of like media messages or is it like something about human nature that makes us of course go like, what, what's your take on all that? I mean, I think like when you're carrying the child, you just put so much pressure on yourself. Like this child is in my home, therefore it's my responsibility. And I, th I think that society doesn't talk about miscarriage and normalize it enough. And so I think we are getting better with that and destigmatizing that a little bit. But I do think that years ago, people didn't talk about miscarriage. And so when they were going through it, they felt very isolated and alone and they felt like it had to be their fault. But I think now that we are talking about this topic more, I think women can start to feel a, they're not alone, but B it's not their fault. So I think we just have to keep spreading that message. Like yeah. we as moms need to keep spreading that message to other moms and women trying to conceive that it's not their fault. And same with infertility. I mean, I have friends going through IVF and infertility right now too. And it's like a lot of times they resent their bodies as well. And they feel like it's something they're doing. And if you're going through infertility, it's nothing mm -hmm. you're doing. It's, it's something's going on, you know, but it's not your fault. And I think we just have to keep spreading that message because the more that we stay silent about this topic of infertility and miscarriage and loss, it's just not going to be helpful because people are going to put it on them when it's not their fault. Yeah. I love that. And 
but what comes to mind for me though is as you you truly understand it's not your fault uh but you have mentioned resenting your body because of this a couple of different times so like what is that like um in terms of knowing that there's nothing you can do but no but also knowing like you know you you reached into the grab bag of you know possible pregnancies and and you got the short straw like that sucks yeah i mean i think there's days where it's like you know, I like on, on social media this weekend, I went on Instagram for 10 minutes and I saw six pregnancy announcements. And mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff where you're like, oh, wow, I am so triggered right now. This is making me mad at my body. And it's just, it's more mad that like, why can't I have that? It's more of that feeling for me. I'm sure everybody's different, right? We're just because we all go through like different losses doesn't mean we all cope with it the same way. I think that's important to remember too, that we all go through grief very differently. But for me, I feel just more triggered of that's not fair. Why can't I have that more of that feeling? And then I got, I'm getting phone calls like from this random place about my pregnancy. I finally had to email them and say, stop calling me, stop emailing me. You are extremely triggering. I did that like three days ago. Um, and you just, that stuff is triggering and it's just more why why not me that's mm-hmm. the feeling i think that a lot of us feel is just why not me why why do they all get to have easy pregnancies and healthy babies and all these things and i don't feel that way at least at least now with like my son like i actually feel very blessed because he's the easiest kid ever and i'm like can we clone him can we get another <laughs> one like can we go adopt another one with down syndrome like he is the, seriously just the happiest, chillest mm-hmm. baby. So I don't feel that way now. But yeah, that pregnancy with him was, I mean, that was a rough pregnancy. I would not want to go through a pregnancy like that again with heart surgery and growth restriction and placenta issues. Like that was not fun. But yeah, I think it's just you have days where you're like, it's fine. It'll work out. And I think when we were going through it, my husband said, well, this sucks, but I still know deep down we're going to have another kid. Like for him, it's just he's very like confident that it will happen. And I think deep down I am too. I think I'm like, it's still going to happen. We just have to be patient. And then there's days where you just can't be patient and you're triggered. And so it's very up and down. Yeah. I mean, it's very up and down. <laughs> so what what do you do uh, to help yourself? You mentioned meditation. You know, it, you might not know any given day you wake up, whether it's going to be an up or a down. Like, what do you do to take to care of yourself there? Yeah, I think self-care is really important. I think um, getting some time alone throughout the day, journaling, meditation. For me, exercise is really important, like going for walks. Um, I love going for walks. I love being outside. I love hiking. I love biking. Just anything I can do outside feels good. I mean, I am religious, so I go to church and I pray and I talk to friends who are Christians and we pray together. And so my faith, I think my faith in God gets me through a lot more things then that's probably the number one but yeah and this is something we talked about at church actually recently on mother's day this was a sermon was talking about loss and talking about infertility and talking about trying to conceive and even just talking about it at church was like wow i'm not alone there's other women in here who've gone through this and you know before covid (laughs) i was in the nursery and talking to other moms and volunteering and i was so close to you know i was very connected to my church and there were there were moms in there who had gone through miscarriage before I did and they were talking about it. And they had, there were some moms in there who had gone through eight miscarriages and we talked about it and we prayed for them. And so I just feel like that in and of itself has been very important to me. Yeah. That's awesome. I really hope that any woman in your position can find that kind of community. And I mean, I think deep down, I have the belief that everything happens for a reason. And even though at the moment when you're suffering, you just think like, what is this reason? What is this purpose? And you sometimes don't see it, but I think eventually it'll show its face. Like eventually I'll understand why. And even if my reason, the reason it happened was only to open up conversation and only to be open about this and only to share my story and to help other moms who are going through it. So they're not alone. Then that's, that's still a silver lining in this whole thing is just having moms being able to reach out and say, I'm going through this too. Can I talk to you? I even had a mom reach out and say, my friend's going through a blightened ovum too. Can she reach out to you? She's going through this exact same miscarriage right now. And so just being able to talk to other moms about it is helpful. And that's how I felt with Down syndrome. It was like, now I get to talk to moms who are going through the same heart surgery and a diagnosis. We just had a friend give birth here. She just had a baby girl with Down syndrome. And now like, I get to be that for her. I get to talk to her about what to expect and our kids get to be friends. And 
just walking that before other people is helpful for the people who are going to be walking through it. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. So you meant when you mentioned just whenever you hop on Instagram, you don't know if you're going to see a birth announcement. What do you want women who have not had the same experience with miscarriage that you had to know? I mean, I imagine you're not going to say don't put up birth announcements. You're probably not going to say that, right? But like, what, so what do you, like, what helps you in that situation? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's hard because like, if you know somebody's pregnant, you can just mute their account temporarily, Mm -hmm. which is a a good, good, good thing on your end. But it's hard because if it's a friend and they tell you they're pregnant, I mean, I, I do think that one thing you could do. So like, if it's a close friend, and you've gone through a loss or like if you're going to announce and you've had a f- close friend go through a miscarriage or um, stillbirth, I personally think it's better to reach out to them personally via text before you announce it. Mm. Don't like, don't surprise them. Like don't mm. have them find out on their feed. So I think if it's a close friend or family member, instead of announcing it in a group text or announcing mm. it in a group situation, I personally I would rather have a friend reach out now and just say, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, like I got a positive pregnancy test or I'm going to announce soon. I just wanted to let you know personally before I told the world or before I told the group, I would appreciate that personally. Again, a lot of these announcements are people I don't know firsthand and they're dietitians or like people that I'm not, you know, close with. And so I think the biggest thing is I have been seeing a lot more um, women when they do post just sharing, like, I know that this can be triggering for some people. I, I think just having a little disclaimer can be really helpful for people. And again, reaching out to those friends or family that are close to you that have gone through a loss, reaching out to them personally beforehand, I think is just really helpful. Cause when you show up at a family event and like somebody announces it, in front of everybody and you're like, great. Or you're at a baby shower and you're literally suffering a miscarriage. It's like you put on this happy face. And I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, there's no right way. And I don't think that people should hide their joy or happiness either. And I think that's the hard part about this whole situation is I don't want women to be like, Oh God, now I can't even announce that I'm pregnant because Mm -hmm. it might be triggering because you should celebrate and it is a life and you should celebrate it and you should be happy about it. But I think just throwing a little disclaimer in there. I think is, is helpful. Yeah. I've seen that on a few posts lately too. I don't know if it's a a more recent trend or what, but I've, I've seen that and I'm glad that it is, uh, you know, what you are hoping for out of that situation, you know, cause like you're saying, you know, (laughs) it's a joyous thing. People have babies. It's going to happen. We love that it happens, right? (laughs) It's great that it happens. This is the whole point that it happens, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we just, we each have such a a different path and we, we don't really know, um, what someone's path has been and how something might be received, but I love, you know, how open you are with all of this so that other women can know that if they, if they want to (laughs) bringing it up, talking about it, posting it online, you know, in your case, a lot of strangers follow you, right? Like, And, you know, I think that's really valuable, um, you know, because maybe they don't know anybody in their personal life who's willing to share it or who who has the confidence to share it. Um, And that's actually really cool that they can see uh, a stranger's life uh, going through it and and reach out to you and, you know, make those kind of connections. So um, and I really appreciate you sharing that story here because I think it's really valuable, um, of course, to get the story out, uh, of course, to talk about the way that it ties in with um, our body changes. Now, you um, what I'm thinking about right now is that you said you were in a very good place with your body once this all came to pass. Mm-hmm. That is not the norm. No. Mm-mm. So no. what can what can we share with women who are not in that place? I think if you are not in a good place with your relationship with food and body now, I think do the work now. And I actually have a few clients that are trying to conceive. They've been with me for a long time. And it's like, personally, I think it's easier to do this work before you have kids because just motherhood in general is stressful. There's a lot on your plate. And so if you don't have kids yet, definitely work on your relationship with food and body. Now, if you have young kids, now is a great time. Sometimes it gets hard when our kids are older and they are really picking up on how we are talking about food and body. It's harder to shift for them. So I think that the easiest time to do it is before we have kids or when our kids are little, like under six, I feel like is a great age, you know, obviously the younger, the better to work on this. Um, and if you haven't done your relationship to food and body and you suffer a miscarriage or a loss and you've gained weight and you feel bad about it and you're struggling with body image, like work with a dietitian, but also work with a therapist. I Mm -hmm. think first and foremost, you gone through grief, you've gone through trauma. 
reach out to a therapist and specifically, I mean, there are some amazing therapists out there who specialize in body image. That is like where I would turn to immediately after a loss, go to a therapist who specializes in that immediately. Once you're kind of feeling under control with that, then I would definitely reach out to a dietitian and start working through some of the food stuff. But if you try to work on it immediately after a miscarriage, like you just need some time to process. So I think that that's where therapy is very important. Yeah, super important. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because uh, most of my guests on the show so far have been other dietitians and we talking about food, talking about, you know, <laughs> intuitive eating and that is an important part of it. Yeah. But like, you know, you need a team. Like I'm, I'm sure, you know, for your son's health needs, he's got a team, right? Yeah, a massive team. Yes. Yeah. And so um, we deserve a team too. And some of those people are medical professionals, some of them are friends and family, but certainly the pressure to not even utilize a team and just manage it all ourselves. I was in that place um, after my second daughter was born. Um, she was diagnosed with food allergies. And I was thinking, well, I'm a dietitian, so I can handle her food allergies. Mm-hmm. No, no, you need a team. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I think that's a really important message for us to share and, and I guess end on. So uh, Brooke, thank you so much. I know it can't be easy talking about this, um, but we, we really appreciate you being so forward and, and sharing it. Um, is there anything you want to leave us with? Um, I think the biggest mm-hmm. thing is like, mama, take care of yourself. And I know that sounds silly <laughs> and it sounds like something you've heard over and over, but you have to fill up your cup first. And if you're not making your health, mental and physical health a priority, things just, they tend to just domino effect. And so, you know, get in like that meditation or that walk by yourself or ask for help with the kids set boundaries. Like there are a lot of things that we can be doing for our self-care as moms. And it's, it's just really important to do that. And if you haven't healed your relationship with food and body yet, like find a dietitian, find a therapist, like get a team, start working through this now because it's just easy. Like your life gets so much easier after you do this work. And so I think that 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 is the most important thing we can do. <laughs> and I love that. Um, and I mentioned you were on the right show earlier because um, I do a lot of work with kids of all ages, but this podcast is targeted at new moms for exactly the reason that you were talking about in terms of let's bang this out right now. Let's figure this out. Yeah. So um, I will put uh, how to contact Brooke in the show notes uh, because uh, if you are thinking that you are a person who wants to get a handle on this, I think Brooke is going to be a really great fit for you. I do this kind of work as well. Well, of course, you know how to contact me. But yeah, Brooke, just thank you so much for for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care. Okay, bye. So there was my original interview with Brooke, and I'm going to have her pop back on for an update. The audio is not as good here, unfortunately, but it's only about five minutes long. And I can't get around this content warning without spilling the beans. Uh, Brooke will be sharing that she is currently pregnant. So if you are not in a place to hear her talk about that, you might want to stop listening to the episode now. Hey, Brooke, thanks so much for coming back on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you joining us. Um, It was about six months ago that uh, we recorded that original interview together. And I know a lot has gone on with your fertility journey since then. So could you give us a quick update? Yeah, for sure. A lot has gone on. So after we had spoken, that was after my second miscarriage. And then we ended up having two more afterwards. And the most recent one was in September. And um, we pretty much found out that those were related to really low progesterone. So I had been on progesterone since the third one, but my levels still weren't where they needed to be. And so my fertility acupuncturist and my OB said, you know, I could try again right after that miscarriage, but if it didn't happen to schedule, you know, an appointment with a fertility specialist. And so we had set up the fertility specialist appointment and two weeks after the last miscarriage, we ended up conceiving and, um, got to cancel that appointment and the numbers looked way better with, um, the progesterone just longer in my system. And so we are now about 16 weeks pregnant. So we're really excited. Congratulations. I am so happy for you. That's such a heartwarming story. Um, but I know if, if you're a person who has gone through that many miscarriages, it's still really anxiety provoking to, to be pregnant and 16 weeks is still pretty early. So how are you feeling with all that? Yeah. The, the anxiety was really, really bad. Um, up to that 
six week appointment, especially like I cried the whole car ride to the ultrasound and was shaking and had a panic attack. And, um, we saw a heartbeat at six weeks. And so that gave us a little bit of relief. And then going into the eight week ultrasound was the exact same thing. And then going into the 12 week ultrasound was honestly the same feeling. And with our son, our 12 week ultrasound was when we had found out that he likely had something, some sort of, you know, uh, diagnoses and, and heart defect. And so there was just like a lot of trauma and anxiety that had happened from the past that was really coming up. And so, um, now that we've made it to 16 weeks, the anxiety is slowly going down, but for anybody who's gone through a miscarriage or multiple miscarriages, once you get that positive pregnancy test, it's, it's a little bit of excitement, but I would say about 90% fear and anxiety that it's just going to keep happening again. And, um, so that's been really kind of difficult to navigate this time around, but, we're trying to remain as hopeful as possible. Yeah, I know. And I know in our original interview, you were talking about, um, you know, you and your husband both having faith that you were going to have a second kid somehow, um, but that looking a little bit different Mm -hmm. for each of you, how does that look for the two of you now? Yeah. Yeah. So we definitely, we kind of flat back and forth, you know, one week he would be like, this is going to happen. It's going to be great. Like we'll figure it out. And then I would be really down and then we kind of swap places. So, um, it feels really good just to have that, you know, knowing that like this baby is looking healthy and growing and everything is on track where it needs to be. But, um, it was, it was hard on our marriage and, uh, we've even like contemplated having three kids after this. And, um, and he's like, well, I, I just, I don't, I don't want to agree to three kids if, if we're going to have to go through four miscarriages to get there. And, um, so it's just, it's, it's taken a lot of energy and anxiety for, for multiple years of going through this. So, um, yeah, I would say he definitely had like a stronger front of like, oh, it will figure it out. It'll happen. But I think deep down he was, he was really struggling too. And I could kind of see that more after this one was starting to progress. I think the anxiety was coming up for both of us. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to escape once you've, uh, gone through any kind of loss. It's just, your mind tends to wander back to that dark place, even though you, you don't want it to. Yeah. Well, when we originally talked to you said a lot about the self-care behaviors that you are trying to stay on top of, um, to take good care of yourself during this that time, uh, how is that working out for you right now? Yeah. I've been going to massage and acupuncture and, um, exercise for me is really helpful for my mental health. So uh, exercising, going for walks, um, going to be starting therapy again soon. And yeah, I think just talking to other moms who've gone through it has been really helpful as well. And just, yeah, letting my husband know when I need a break and need help. And honestly, it's been kind of wild. Like my, my, my toddler's at home with me while trying to work right now for another few weeks. And so that has been a little bit stressful to navigate to. Um, so we're figuring it out. Self-care is it's, it, it is something I prioritize, but, um, it doesn't look perfect every day. That's for sure. Of course. Of <laughs> course. I think the, the idea that there's a perfect version of self-care is a lot like a perfect version of intuitive eating existing. Yeah. It's like we, <laughs> there, there is no hundred percent there. It looks different for everyone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So we also talked about pregnancy announcements um, and how you were feeling when you would see other people announce. And I know that you recently announced your own current pregnancy on your social media. So how how did you do that? And you know, uh, what was the response and what was going on there? Yeah, it was, you know, it was like exciting to be able to announce it, but especially for those people who had been asking like how we were doing and cheering us on and praying for us, it was really cool to see that. And, um, people were really genuinely excited and really happy for us. And so that was really, really just, I don't know. It just felt really good to have that support from other people, even people we didn't know personally. And then, um, we just made sure to talk in the announcement about like our struggles and our journey to get here and how it hasn't been easy. And, um, that we understand what it's like to go through recurrent miscarriages and, um, just hope, hopefully this announcement gives somebody out there hope who's gone through multiple miscarriages that it is possible to get your rainbow baby. It just, you know, it, it's probably not in the timing that you want, unfortunately is what we discovered, but, um, just to continue to try to have faith as much as you can. And, um, I know there were some 
moms I follow who just had their rainbow babies in the last month. And one's actually pregnant and due a day before me. And she's gone through multiple miscarriages too. And it's just really cool to see moms um, just kind of like have that happy ending when you just don't know how long you're going to like live in this for. So I'm hoping it gives some people hope who are still struggling and just wanted to acknowledge all of those women out there just because I know how hard announcements can be to see too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I loved your announcement and it is such a hopeful story. Uh, so I hope that this helps other women. Um, anything you want to add? Um, I think it just, if anybody's out there struggling or, you know, have, if you have questions or struggles, like I'm here, so don't be afraid to reach out and chat. Yeah, definitely. So I will link to all of your uh, socials and contact info in the show notes uh, here. Um, But just want to thank you so much for coming back on to share your update. Thanks for joining me in the messy intersection. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Okay, folks, thank you for listening today. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would so appreciate if you could rate and review the show in your podcast player. And if you want to continue the conversation about this or anything else related to raising kids in a world saturated with diet culture, I encourage you to join my free private Facebook group, Raising Anti-Diet Kids. The link is in today's show notes. And until next time, embrace the mess. Embrace the mess.